Section 5 of Harper's Young People, Volume 1, Issue 21, March 23, 1880. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jeff Evans, Minneapolis, Minnesota. The Chamois and Their Foes the only European species of the antelope family are the chamois, Antelope rupicapra, which inhabit the highest regions of the Alps, the Pyrenees, and the Caucasus. On inaccessible cliffs and rocky crags these graceful mountaineers make their home, and except when disturbed by the approach of man, lead a peaceful and harmless life. The chamois resembles the wild goat of the Alps, but is more elastic and spry. It is especially distinguished from it by the absence of beard, and by its black glistening horns, which are curved like a hook and pointed. In the spring the chamois is very light-colored, but as summer advances its coat assumes a reddish-brown hue, which by December often becomes coal-black. Its eyes are large, black, and full of intelligence, and its delicate hooves are surrounded by a projecting rim which renders it firm-footed and able to march with ease over the great glaciers or along narrow ledges of rock. These pretty animals live in herds, five, ten, sometimes twenty together. They are merry, wise creatures, graceful and agile in their movements, and spring from cliff to cliff and across chasms with extraordinary lightness and sureness of foot. In the winter the chamois seek the upper forests in the mountain slopes, where, under the shelter, of the widely branching umbrella fir, the drooping boughs of which hang almost to the ground, they find snug quarters and long dry grass for winter provender. The opening of spring in the Swiss Alps is attended by many wonderful phenomena. It would seem that no power was strong enough to break the icy chain in which the high Alps are bound fast. But there comes a day, generally early in April, when beautifully tinted veils of cloud form over the southern horizon, and a death-like stillness prevails in the mountains. The eye of the experienced hunter detects this sign in a moment, and knows it to be the token of approaching danger. If among the glaciers he hastens to the valley below, where he finds the villages in commotion, sheep and cattle are being hurriedly housed, and everything being secured against the dreaded fern, which is surely coming from beyond those rose-tinted clouds in the south. The fern is a warm wind which in spring comes blowing northward from the hot African desert. On a sudden the stillness is broken by a terrible rushing sound, and a burning breath like fire strikes on the snowy pinnacles and glaciers. All nature is soon in an uproar. Mighty banks of snow loosened from their winter resting place roar and rumble down the mountainside in avalanches, bearing huge rocks and giant trees in their arms. The whole winter architecture of the mountains crumbles to ruins before the burning desert wind. When the storm is over, the great ice beds and banks of snow cease their pranks, and peace reigns once more in the mountains. But the strength of winter is broken. The fern returns again and again, and soon patches of bluish-green begin to appear here and there among the high precipitous crags, when the highest mountain pastures are open, the chamois leave their forest retreat and troop upward into the most lofty regions. Here they lead a happy life. They are the most frolicsome 
in the autumn and may be seen for hours together gambling and chasing each other upon the very smallest ledges of rock where it would seem almost impossible to maintain a foothold. There are sometimes bitter fights, too, between the male chamois, terrible contests for leadership. Grappling each other with their horns, they battle until a superiority of strength is decided. The chamois is very shy and is always on the alert. Its sense of hearing, of smell, and of sight is very acute, and the most skillful hunter will sometimes search the mountain pastures for days without securing his game. When the troop is grazing, a sentinel is always appointed who stands on the watch, sniffing the air. At the least approach of danger, the careful sentinel gives a shrill whistling signal of warning, and instantly the troop is filing off between the rocks and along the chasms where no human foot could follow, all whistling together as they march. The only chance of the hunter to escape detection by these watchful creatures is to approach them from above, for, as if conscious that there are few so daring as to penetrate the upper regions of eternal snow, the sharp eye of the sentinel is on the lookout for danger from below. As the greatest skill and courage are required to secure this valuable game, a good chamois hunter is a person of importance in the wild Swiss valley where he lives, and the family of which he is a member glory in his deeds and relate them to awestruck listeners around the evening fireside. Chamois hunting is the central point around which cluster all the charms of romance and dangerous adventure. It is the subject of many popular ballads, and its hold upon the imagination of the people is wonderful. Chamois skulls adorned with the black hooked horns may be seen among the most precious treasures of many a Swiss household each one suggestive of some tale of wonderful bravery and endurance. The chamois hunters of Switzerland lead a strange life. None knows when he departs from his home in the morning with his gun, ammunition, and alpenstock, if he will ever return from the mysterious misty heights towering before him far aloft in the clouds. The pursuit of the chamois will often lead him to the narrowest boundaries between life and death to overhanging cliffs and across gorges where even the falling of a bit of turf or the loosening of a stone would be fatal. Up, up the hunter must go in search of the cunning game until lost among the cliffs and blinded by the thick mists which appear as clouds to those in the valley below, he may often wander in the trackless solitudes for days with the terrible roar of avalanches sounding in his ears before being able to return to his home. And yet in face of all these dangers, the Swiss, apart from the price they obtain for the flesh, skin, and horns of the chamois, have an inborn love of this sport, and stories are told of many celebrated hunters, men to whom every rock, tree, and path on the high mountains was as familiar as the streets of their native village, and who feared neither fogs, snowstorms, nor avalanches. But few of these hunters, however, have died at home in their beds, for in the end accident overtook them, and their lofty hunting ground became their grave. INDIANS AND THE RED WILLOW To the Indians of the great western plains, the red willow, which is only found in that country, proves so very useful that its loss would be greatly felt by them. It is a bushy growth, never reaching more than fifteen or twenty feet in height, 
and is found along the river banks where it grows rapidly and in great abundance. The Indian most values the red willow because from its bark he makes what to him is a very good substitute for tobacco. To do this, he strips one of the long, slender shoots of its leaves and with his knife cuts the bark until it hangs from the wood in little shreds. Then he thrusts the stick into the fire, but not so that it will burn, only so that the bark will become thoroughly dried. When this is done, he carefully rubs it between his hands until it is crumbled almost to a powder. This willow bark powder he mixes with a small quantity of real tobacco, if he has any. If not, he mixes it with the dried and crumbled leaf of a small and very bitter shrub that grows on the mountainsides and has a leaf-looking somewhat like our boxwood. The Indians call it kalikinik, and often mix it with tobacco when they have no red willow. So fond are the Indians of their red willow tobacco that they prefer it to the real unmixed article, which seems to be too strong for them. The squaws use the red willow to make temporary shelters or wickiups, which are used instead of the heavy skin lodges or teepees, when the Indians are on the move and only camp in one place for a night or so. When a pleasant spot by some running stream where there is plenty of red willow has been fixed upon for a camping place and a fire has been lighted, the squaws cut a quantity of the willow and make a rude framework of the larger branches, of which the butt ends are fixed firmly into the ground and the small ends bound together to look like a small dome. They weave the smaller branches and twigs in and out until the whole affair looks like a great leafy basket turned upside down. The entrance is very low, and when once inside, a grown person can only lie or sit down, for if he should stand up, he would probably lift the house with him. While the squaws are building the wickiups, the Indian has been stretched on the ground, smoking his long-stemmed pipe with its stone or iron bowl, or else he has been kneeling beside the fire preparing his much-loved red willow tobacco. Over the same fire is hung a jackrabbit, skinned, and spitted upon a slender red willow stick, and from a tree nearby the baby swings in his red willow cradle. From the same red willow the squaws make baskets and mats. In its tender twigs the ponies browse in the winter when the grass is covered deep with snow. And to these same red willow thickets the Indians go in winter in search of deer or antelope, which are pretty sure to be found browsing among them. So, you see, the Indian has good reason to be fond of the red willow, and he dreads the approach of white farmers who clear it off from the rich bottom lands wherever they locate, for it is on these lands that they can raise their heaviest crops of corn. End of section 5